Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. And welcome everybody to our practice manager webinar. It's lovely to see you all again. We've got Adam Tuckett coming at 1.30 to talk about data opt-out. That was one of the things that one of you said to us. We sent an email saying, I'm not sure I know very much about this. And we just thought, let's just see if we can get somebody along who might know a little bit, a lot more than we do. So Adam's coming along hopefully about 1.30 um, to talk to us about that. And we've got um, Lisa Harding, our Director of um, Primary Care, and Dawn, our Deputy Director of Primary Care with us today, which is fantastic. And we've also been delighted to welcome Ed Wendell, who is GP and our newest Medical Director. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to Ed, and he's just going to introduce himself and say a little bit about himself and his practice and what he does for us at Wessex NMCs. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Louise. Um, thanks for having me on the webinar and uh, uh, good to uh, connect with you virtually. I can't see anyone, but it's uh, good to connect. Um, I was just thinking, I went for a little stroll lunch. I was like, what can I say about myself? And I realised I'd done, I'd uh, sent out a little intro about myself on the newsletter. So hopefully you'll have seen that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, just a little bit about my background. I'm a GP. Uh, I live in Salisbury uh, and I work at the Orchard Partnership uh, practice in Wilton, just uh, to close by. Um, so I'm a, a medical director at Wessex LMCs. I joined uh, six or seven weeks ago now, so just getting uh, feet under the table um, and uh, yeah, really enjoying it so far. Uh, my background is um, a little bit in the last couple of years, I've been working in Wiltshire as a, a commissioner, so a Wiltshire locality clinical lead for Wiltshire. So I will know uh, some of you, particularly from Wiltshire, um, having attended sort of practice manager meetings there and uh, you know, seeing the good work that can be done uh, connecting uh, there. Um, I don't think I've got too much more to say. I was just sort of, um, uh, I think if you joined early, you'll know I've got two small children who are two and five, and we've uh, just gone through the um, uh, some of the little uh, bits around um, uh, television. Uh, but I think that's all I wanted to say, really, apart from, I suppose, the only bit was uh, the practice managers conference louise so uh looking forward to seeing some of you there hopefully so i'll be attending that uh that's coming up thank you yeah, fabulous plug i like that very much ed thank you um so yeah 9th of june i was looking at the numbers just before we came on actually we've got um just 22 places left so we want to get up to 200 which would be lovely because that was sort of almost half of you um and we got yes and uh, lots of you booked which is absolutely brilliant so but if you haven't booked your place do book we are going to record as much as we can. It won't be live streamed, but to be recorded afterwards. But of course, it won't feel the same as being there. So if you can be there, we're just so looking forward to catching up with you, meeting you again, chatting with you. It's going to be a lovely venue. There's interesting speakers, nice food. There's all even sort of a sort of a, a massage chair that you can go and have a little neck, neck massage when, when when you feel the time's right. So do please join us. We're hoping it's going to be an inspirational day, interesting day, day to catch up with um, with your colleagues and also just to go away feeling better that you're not alone and actually the world of practice management is busy but you're you know when you um, are working so hard you're thriving and flourishing and we want to just celebrate what you do um, with us because um, we all love working with you so yeah Ed will be there and that'll be fantastic yeah. all, all the team that's here today will be there um, I, I wasn't aware of the numbers so I think that'll be you know you know that sort of numbers it'll be a, a really good feel I um I, uh, I saw the uh, sort of paper agenda this morning. It looks really interesting and um, uh, not just plugging it, it, it honestly does. And yeah, we went to the national conference of LMCs a couple of weeks ago. And I think there is something around being, you know, having that connection, being in a place with a lot of other humans over this last couple of years has been hard. And it's, um, yeah, I think that'll be a really positive day. 
it's always my favourite day, spending days with practice managers, so I'm looking forward to it massively. So that would be lovely. Thanks, Ed. And Ed's going to stay with us for the rest of this um, time today. Um, so when, it, when you and when and if you have some questions, do please push them in, push them our way, and we will all do our best to to answer them. So as I said, well, it's one thirty. Adam Tuckett will join us for data opt out. But before that, we've just got a few things we'd like to run through with you. Um, so I think Dawn, you're going to start off everything GPAS, please. Mm, yes, thanks, Louise. So yes, thank you, GPAS General Practice Alert State. Firstly, I just want to say a huge, huge thank you to all of you who have right from the get-go the last couple of weeks got in there and sent us your um, your data for the last couple of weeks. Brilliant. And we actually had enough data for data quality purposes to actually put out three sit reps last week. And I say three, one for each of our system areas. So like I say, huge thank you. We've had quite a few questions, understandably, new system. Um, so I just wanted to uh, go over a couple of things which um, hopefully will reassure some of you and, and answer some of those questions. So firstly, it is anonymous. Um, so when you reply to us, we can't see who is replying. Um, and hopefully that will reassure you for you to declare your status as it is. Um, and because we can't see who has sent us in their data, when we send out a little gentle reminder, it does go to everybody. Um, and we have put a banner at the top that says, if you have replied, thanks so much. And please ignore and delete this email on the gentle reminder. But we are getting quite a few who are saying, oh, don't worry, I've already done it, which is which is fantastic. Thank you. Um, but just so you know, we do have to send the gentle reminder to everybody because obviously we don't know who has actually already replied. So reference to the appointments booked. Um, we do totally understand that this might not reflect, well, I'm sure it doesn't reflect the whole picture of what is going on in your practice, but we have to start somewhere. And this was set up, as we said before, by Devon um, on the basis to map us to an, an OPAL um, equivalent so that we can compete with secondary care. So whilst we are asking for all your booked appointments, your contacts on a Monday each week, we do realise that this doesn't actually pick up and reflect many other tasks that you're doing. But there is the alert status for you to consider how you reply to. Uh, so, as I said, at the LMC here, we hold the GPAS data and we use this to produce the uh, SIT reps each week for the systems. Now, if, for instance, um, there was a black status for the system as a whole, which, which I know would be unusual, but it could happen. This doesn't actually mean the ICS and the CCG will come and ask all green practices to assist because they won't know. They won't know who is green, red black, amber, whatever. Again, all anonymous. But what it does mean, or it might mean, is the ICS or the CCG may reach out to practices within the total whole of their area and say, look, we know that there is some problems out there from our own intelligence. And can we ask, are there any practices that could help? I'm not saying they will do that, but they could. I'm just trying to demonstrate, again, what we send out from our side is anonymous. We hold the data um, and we just send out the SIT rep for the, SIT, for the system. What it will do, the GPAS report will give our directors information and tools to use and have meaningful conversations with the stakeholders at both a 
place-based and a strategic level if and when they need it. So I can hear you all asking, and we've heard it, what does it mean for me? Well, we need to be honest here and say that in the short term, possibly not all we might hope for. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And if we look at the example from Devon LMC, their GPAS is now part of their whole system dashboard. The system in Devon has found from trend data that if primary care starts to peak amber and reds on a week by week basis, two weeks later, it was found urgent care and A&E also had increased demand. This, in effect, gave stakeholders an early warning system, uh, which actually helped and gave buy into the whole GPAS idea, if you like. So the other thing it did do, one off, very unusual, secondary care did come to the aid of primary care in Devon, we were told. Well, that, that's quite, un, quite unheard of, as we know. Um, so what I'm trying to say, I think, is that we need to stick with it, please. We need to be able to build up our trend data that, remember, is converted to the OPAL framework status. And this can sit alongside and compete with the secondary care assessment status. We do acknowledge that there are other demand and capacity tools out there. However, GPAS, once we convert, can sit alongside OPAL, as I've said, and have a seat at the table for an apples and apples conversation rather than apples and pears. And the system's being rolled out across all LMCs in the country, and as we share SIT reps with the BMA and the GPC, they will have a standardised view of primary care at a national level. And historically, we've not had this before. So please hang in there. Give us the opportunity to build up general practice trend data so that we can use these reports to support you and your practice in the long run. And that's probably more than enough for me on that. Thank you, Dawn. That's really helpful. And it's, it's just so heartening to think that practices are spending those few moments of their, their weeks, which are just so busy, to send in this information. And as, as um, Dawn said, the more we get, the better, the more accurate it is. But we've already had some good feedback, haven't we, from some trusts and things saying, yeah, actually, that's fantastic, this is really useful. Um, so we really wanted to be as, as helpful as it possibly can be. But as Dawn said, it's completely confidential. Um, so we, can, we will protect that. Um, and it's extremely important to us that we carry on protecting that. So thank you, Dawn. And that's great. And I think, um, yeah, completely different subject. I think we're going down to monkeypox now. <laughs> that's please, not, please, do I? Yes, yes, Ed. Do you mind if I jump in on GPAS? I just oh, do, do. oh, please. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, I was just following up on Dawn's comments. Really, I, I think that is the concept of how to think about it. it, it there is a, a degree of helping yourself as a practice, but I think this is helping, uh, the, you know, yourself as part of this, but being the, the entirety of primary care, and it is that longer-term view. So it isn't isn't so direct a sort of, if I do this, it benefits me in this direct way so it is a little bit of a leap of faith which is why we're asking but that's the difference here it's a national system we can pick up a national picture uh, when all the lmcs go online and it is coming to the lmcs rather than uh, ccgs um having been a commissioner i think the two things it does do it, it put prim puts primary care on the agenda so you know if there's a there's system meetings and everything's discussed there were, I've been in plenty of meetings where there's just like primary care, anything to say, we've got no data and there's not a lot to, to be able to get in there when you're sort of talking about hospitals under extreme pressure and opening up different areas. So it, it puts primary care on the map. And I think the other key thing, it is slightly negative, but it just stops the solution to secondary care being primary care because you can demonstrate the 
pressures in primary care. So, you know, there'll be a lot of talk about all the pressures in hospital and I'm often like, can we do something different with, you know, can primary care step in and support all this? And I think uh, it's a slightly regressive attitude, but, um, you know, frankly, it's it's needed. So that's helpful. And then just top two top tips for me about completing it. So it doesn't actually take that long. Um, and my two tips would be one, a time prompt in the week. So is there something that happens in your practice at a certain time in the week where you can hang it on it? So is there a staff meeting on a Tuesday, practice meeting or a person who takes the post down uh, at a certain time on a Tuesday. Uh, and that links in with the second point, which is delegate. So it doesn't have to be the practice manager doing this. So, you, you know, I think this is quite a good thing to delegate within the practice and, and give that responsibility to someone else in the practice to complete it. Thanks. Great. Really helpful. Thank you very much, Ed. That's great. And no doubt we'll come back to Jib. Oh, Dawn. Uh, one other thought on Jib has, um, that's building on what Ed's just said. Thank you, Ed. Um, we have had a couple of replies through the anonymous system, if you like, so we don't know who it is, where they've sent in their GPAS alert status, but unfortunately they've not filled in the Monday contacts, just says zero. And they've put a little comment in the free text box that says we don't have time to check the Monday contacts. Now, I, I absolutely understand we, we know there's just so much going on. Unfortunately, though, I, I do need to say, if there is a zero, we can't include them, unfortunately, because it skews the figures massively. So whilst we appreciate anything you can do, unfortunately, giving us a zero, we have to take that out because it, like I say, skews the figures. Um, I know a lot of practices have already delegated the task out as well because we've been asked to add in a new GPAS contact um, to, to the email system so if you'd like to do that please do get in touch and we'll happily delegate it out so that's useful Dawn so can you have two email contacts or do you need to have one so as Jenny's come and say I think the email request only goes to practice managers can it be sent to another person too in case of absence so are you allowed to have two names you you absolutely can the only thing and we have got some of that brilliant absolutely fantastic because it covers holidays as well of course but um, just be aware of if it's going to two you just need an arrangement between you because what we don't want is two replies really okay. because that equally could skew figures okay and um I know it's yet more work, but even manually counting takes seconds to do. Um, is, are there any, is there any, I think Deb is saying, even counting the number on a Monday is just one more task. So it feels sometimes I feel like I, I haven't even got time to do that. I think that's how it's feeling. Is there okay. a quick way of doing that? There, there is a report that you can run in both EMIS and System 1. Um, and, and that in the little attachment that goes with the email each week that shows you those screenshots of where you can find that. I'm um, laughing because I've completely got the wrong end of the stick. Sorry, oh. no. What she's trying to say, she's supporting the LMC. Is it only take it only takes seconds to do, rather than it takes seconds to do. So that's completely my fault. But that was useful, Dawn. So there is a uh, there is a report if people want it. Yep, there absolutely is. Yes, lovely. Thank you. And if any, sorry, Debbie, about that. Um, and if you, anybody wants to have a quick demo about how they don't know much about it at the moment like to a bit more dawn will be at the practice manager conference in a couple of weeks time and she's very happy to talk anything about gpas um, and we'll have a little um, laptop there to run through anything that would be that would be helpful so um great thank you very much for that and i think we're going back we are now going back to monkeypox mm. 
That's quite a change, isn't it? But yes, monkeypox, and I'm sure some of you might have seen anyway out in the news there. It seems that there are some cases of monkeypox virus that uh, UXA have been or have confirmation of cases in this country. And some of the cases don't have any identified travel links to West Africa, which is where it's usually or previously found. So a CAS alert did go out to um, all um, NHS providers, obviously not just primary care, but right across the board. Um, And what we've done is we put together a little web page. I won't go into it all now, but literally we've got the web page link on our hot topics right on our front page as it's very current. Um, And in there, you'll see the letter from UXA. There's also a link to the government web page for primary care information. Um, And there's also another link to some other resources that have just come out. So it's on our front hot topics page if you need or would like to have a look at any of it. Great, that's really helpful, Dawn. Thank you. And um, just one comment: um, we are an EMIS practices from Jan. It takes two minutes. Have also auto completed the other areas of the form, so it's now completing even quicker. So the feedback we're getting is it's fantastic. Quick, it's worth doing. So well, that's good feedback. Thank you very much, and thank you for the mon- monkeypox information. Um, Lisa, I think we're coming to you now um, about records. Thanks, Louise. Just a couple of bits for me. So I think we mentioned it at the last webinar, but deceased patient records, um, people are probably aware by now that due to delayed con- contractual rec- um, changes for dis- deceased patient records, um, NHSE has confirmed um, that the changes have, have yet to take effect. So this is around system changes needed um, and so that practices should continue to print and send the full records to PCSE until we have notification um, to the contrary. Um, PCSE will also retain the obligation to process um, AHRA requests. Um, it receives directly until that time. So there's a bit of a quid pro quo there. Um, if, if you haven't been doing that, we just wanted to make people aware that you might be contacted by PCSE to ask them, ask you to, to print off records. And we have had one practice let us know that that's happened to them. So it was just really to make people aware. <clears throat> so just a quick one. In which case, yeah, I'll go on to COVID passes. So um, the medical exemption service. So as of the 12th of May, um, the NHS domestic pass is no longer available. So the medical exemption service, um, Bonmore 9, will not accept new applications from people who want to use domestic NHS COVID pass um, to prove that they can't be vaccinated for medical reasons. Um, the 119 service will, however, continue to be running at a minimal level until the 11th of July and will only accept queries to the call centre and processing outstanding applications via GP assessments into the summary care record application. Um, GPs will be required to continue processing applications until that date, until the 11th of July, uh, to comply to the with the regulations, GP regulations, um, and pre- previously granted exemptions will continue to show throughout in the NHS um, COVID pass under view my records, except where they expired due to time limited grounds. Um, on that note, the NHS COVID pass for international travel will continue to be available as usual. Um, and there's a bit more information on the gov.uk website. Um, Lisa, that's great. And then moving on from that, unless anybody's got any questions or comments, um, UK visa sponsorship. Um, So the BMA has partnered with a legal firm called McGrath Sheldrick, 
which oversees their um, immigration advice service. And they're developing a, a webinar on navigating the GP sponsorship process. So we know it can be hugely complex and the documentation around this is, is really confusing and difficult to work your way through. So um, that webinar is specifically done um, aimed at GP employers and offers practical tips on how to nav navigate the sponsorship um, process to recruit non-UK nationals and addresses frequently asked questions. So I will put the link to that in the, in the Q&A box uh, in case people are interested. So it's just to make people aware of that. That's helpful. Do you know when it is? Is it soon? I'll have a look. I will, um, as Dawn goes on to the next item, I'll click on the links and just okay. try and put a bit more detail in there. Um, and there's just a um, comment that's come in. Can I ask about mask wearing in the practice? Do we think the requirement is likely to be removed soon? This is probably on the back of you talk about COVID passes and talk about COVID. Um, Lisa, Dawn, I don't know if you've got any feelings about that. We talked this morning about infection control, didn't we? And um, CQC's input. And do either of you have any more information about mask wearing? I think although mask wearing has stopped in general public terms, if you like, the IPC guidance is still out there. And I believe the recommendation hasn't been changed, but I will go and check, that says that mask wearing should continue in healthcare settings. Um, and there's probably not much more that we can say other than that. No, we'll do a little bit of work on that. And if there is any more uh, update, or maybe just just an update, if this is what we understand to be the current guidance, might be helpful if people are unsure whether it's changing or not. Um, we can certainly do something on that. Um, I think just just for me, just recognising, yeah, yeah, that that feel, you know, between um, I think members of the public, you know, you can go and sit in a massive football stadium without a mask. And I went to a conference two weeks ago, and then still being asked to come into the surgery. But I think the difference is, you know, it's the setting, isn't it? So you've got waiting rooms with uh, perhaps immunosuppressed patients and, um, you know, it's not a normal environment. People are coming there uh, being unwell. So I think uh, yeah, I've not heard that it's um, imminently going. I think that will still be a, a slight for, you know, uh, causing confusion with the public as we go on and get further away from restrictions more generally. But, it does uh, yeah. feel like a mixed message at the moment. I can't understand people not being so sure. Um, Lisa, that point, I wondered, Louise, if it's worth um, mentioning the work that Joe has done for our website on lots and lots of resources and patient information posters covering a variety of topics, but but around some of that in terms of patient behaviours and um, just forewarning um, patients around delays and how they can find out more information around secondary care appointments, et cetera, et cetera. So if I find that link, uh, would it be useful if I put it in the... Yes, um, definitely. So we've got a, yeah. sort of a comms for patients um, section on our website. So do please have a look at that. There are adaptable posters or things you could just print out and put, put up or you can copy them, put them on your own website. So hopefully that we've got some wording in there that might be helpful for you. We know it's um, it's just a constant battle and really, really hard work to get the comms right. And we feel that sometimes sort of nationally it's against us in what we're trying to say. Um, but do have a look at the work that we've done on that. So hopefully there'll be some bits in there that can help you. Um, yeah, good point, Lisa. Thank you. Um, I think we're going on to Dawn now. Um, pensions and PCSE. Lovely. Thanks, Louise. Yes. So PCSE have said that they are, this is their words, not mine, by the way, but they are currently on track to have all accurately completed certificates, pension certificates that were received during the 2020-21 submission window, which was up until the 7th of March. They're on track to have those processed in time for NHS pensions cut off for the August total reward statement release. 
Now, if you didn't get your certificate in uh, during that time, don't, don't worry, you have now a second deadline. So if you missed that one, if you submit by the 7th of June, your tier one or tier two certificate for 2021, um, that should hopefully then all be uploaded, ready for NHS pensions to put that into the October TRS statement refresh. But they do put out a please remember. Please remember your TRS will only be refreshed by NHS pensions if all certificates prior to 2020-21 have been submitted and show on your PCSE online record as successfully processed. There's a little <clears throat> if button a maybe in there. So, yes, you have got a second deadline if you didn't get your tier one, tier two certificate in, which the second deadline is 30th of June. That's helpful. Thank you, Dawn. And we did run a bite-sized webinar um, back on the 17th of May. So Sue Scott, one of our practice supporters, led this with the, with them at guest Vanessa Morrison from PCSE. And we went through lots of different things about the PCSE, the portals, how to work your way around the website. And there were all sorts of tips that um, Vanessa did share with us. So that's available on the website. I'll put the link in when I stopped talking. And um, and then that, that might be useful for you to watch. If you're new to PCSE or even if you're not new to PCSE, we had about 56 um practice managers and um, other members of the practice management team on the call and they all found it useful and picked something up so that might be something to watch um, if you want to to help with PCSE so I'll put that in the chat in a minute. Um, I think we're carrying on now with you Dawn and refugees. Yes thanks Louise yeah refugees so um, understandably we're getting a few queries about Ukrainian refugees um, coming in and what we're literally just in the process of doing we're just going to put together a small web page with the links to all the various resources and tools that are out there. Um, <clears throat> and we're also talking to local systems um, because we believe there may be, don't hold us to it, there may be some limited funding um, that might be available, but we don't have any firm detail on that at the moment. Um, so wash this space, as we say. Um, and once we've got the web page up and running, which hopefully will be quite soon, I'm sure we can pop that into our newsletter as well. But if you go onto our web page um, and we can tag the page refugees, if you just put that into the search bar, then it should easily come up for you once we've got it up and running. Um, and probably a good time also just to move swiftly on, if I may, just, to... Just hold on sorry. one second. I just want to see, I don't know whether Ed wants to come in about refugees. Oh, yes. I, was, I found my hand function, sorry, I was interrupting. Oh, Ed, no, that's fine. Um, so, um, yeah, it's just, it's just to say, just recognising that. I think we've seen uh, when other um refugees come it's more concentrated so afghan refugees often in a hotel and there's a big impact on local primary care services and there's funding then to follow this i think it's been disappointing we haven't seen that for ukrainian refugees i think it's partially because it's more dispersed into people's houses so it's just to say we are pushing on that we're, we're in conversations with commissioners uh, they're frustrated a little bit as well to be be honest but um yeah we're hopeful that some limited national funding might come for this because you know just recognizing we've had emails in and it is a big impact around the uh, um, the medical need the translations the extra appointment time on practices so we're we are trying to um, raise that and push that lovely thank yeah thank you very much and um, dawn did you want to carry on your own uh, oh are we going to cqc next time yes it's it's not a big item but um one i think worth mentioning cqc mythbusters um, we have a CQC Mythbuster webpage, which some of you may have seen. And what we do is we refresh that 
each time CQC update any Mythbuster. Well, for those that have or might have clicked on it, you'll see there's a huge number of Mythbusters that have been updated in May. When I say huge, I mean, I'm talking 50 plus, um, which we realise is is massive. Um, so if you have got any inspections or monitoring calls coming up, you might just want to have a click on there and refresh yourself to become familiar with those maybe that have been updated. But what we are doing, I'm sending out an email to CQC today. What we want to know is are all of those Mythbusters different or have they been refreshed in some way or is it because they were taken down possibly due to suspensions during COVID and now they've put them back up again because obviously COVID regulations have ended. So, um, yeah, if we do find out any more on that, we'll let you know. But in the meanwhile, anyway, our CQC Mythbuster page has links to all those that have been refreshed. Thank you, Dawn. Yes, we looked at the list this morning. We did feel it was rather overwhelming and trying to work out what's new and what isn't new is, is yes, very time-consuming. So we'll do some work um, for you on your behalf for that. Adam has come in beautifully on time. Um, but thank you, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Adam is, um, as um, those of you who have been listening and watching these webinars for a little while, um, very experienced on information governance and is a very helpful um, friend and expert that we work with often um, for this topic and can answer lots and lots of questions that we can't and is often the person we go to um, when you give us a question we just say we're not, we're not really very sure about this so i think data opt-out is what we're talking about today adam um, and we're very much looking forward to hearing your um hearing your wisdom on it did you are you sharing any slides did you want me to, uh, uh, no, no slides no, prepared no, at this stage fine. and we yeah. can have quite a sort of open unstructured discussion which is another word for saying i haven't done any preparation for any great degree but obviously it's something i do encounter pretty much daily um so I think the question came, we don't actually know what it is. So if you can tell us what it is, that would be really helpful and we'll carry on from there. Okay. I mean, under the heading of, of data opt-outs, we can probably see a number of different things. And it's probably worth me just sort of clarifying which each one of them is. Um, and I'm always conscious when we do this that I sit here as someone who thinks he knows what he's talking about, hopefully to a reasonable degree, explaining it to you guys who've got to explain it to the patients. Um, and I don't don't begrudge you that task at all because it's hard enough for any of us to understand that then the poor old patient. Um, we have a number of opt-outs then for really across the health and care system. Um, you'll be familiar with some of these terms, no doubt, but if I just sort of cover the whole of them, if we look at the use of data beyond the care of the individual, um, so things that are not related to the person's care, then effectively there are two opt-outs. There always have been, and that even though there was a drive to effectively make one opt-out out of them, that's never really quite come to fruition. So you'll be familiar probably with the terms of a type one opt-out and what used to be a type two opt-out. Um, the type two opt-outs are the ones that became the national data opt-out. Difference between the type one and the type two is the type one is the idea is that data never leaves the practice. So if a patient doesn't want their data to leave the practice for anything other than their direct care, then they will need a type one opt-out on the practice system. And that's a particular code um, through EMIS or SNOMED or whichever coding system you've got, et cetera. Um, I don't have the codes to hand, but we, there are plenty of examples of what they are. And the idea being if, that, if the patient is there for putting that in place, their data doesn't leave the practice for anything other than a direct care, summary care record or shared care record example where that is a direct care activity. The national data opt-out is similar, 
but the data leaves the practice and goes up to the national teams like NHS Digital or NHS Transformation Director and they're now now technically part of. And the idea then being that obviously they retain the, the national register of patients who register on the national data opt-out. Um, and this is the one you can find under the sort of website like your NHS Data Matters, for example. Um, that's a public website where they can make that registration. That data is all held centrally. And the idea is all the systems and services that potentially want to use data of patients for activities that are not direct care related again, need to link their systems in to that register. And so when they are looking to use data for something that is within the scope of secondary uses, and I'll talk about that in just a second, they need to link in with the national data opt-out and identify which patients have got a national data opt-out and therefore not include those patients in the analysis work they then do. Just for a few figures, um, I believe it's about it's either five to six percent or five no yes no it's it, i can't remember the exact figures it's it's a few million individuals they've got a national data opt-out there is a page you can go and you can actually see the numbers the last update was in april um unsurprisingly when the gp data for planning research situation if i call it that was um hot topic probably a year or so ago now coming up to a year or so ago now it moved from being a few th- or a few tens of thousands of opt-outs to being over a million over a period of a couple of weeks. So that that shows when that sort of headline hits the news, rightly or wrongly, about the, the sort of stories that come through that, obviously with a lot of truth, but also some some tabloidism, should we put it that way, on in there as well, that has resulted in a lot of people opting out of, of their care, sorry, of their records being used for things beyond their care, um, which is their option. It's the option the NHS has chosen to give them. But when you start to think that's 5 to 6% of the population, potentially, that obviously has a bit of an impact on any analytics we want to do, um, particularly if they are individuals in more specific cohorts, perhaps more digitally enabled amongst us, um, rather than obviously individuals who don't have that, that sort of facility. Um, so that's the national data opt-out. What that technically applies to, to, to get a little bit naughty about it, it applies applies to uses of what they term confidential patient information beyond the direct care of the patient. Now, it's, it's crucial to remember that and notify that on the basis that data that is anonymized or strongly pseudonymized is not in that definition of confidential patient information. The definition is a legal one, actually. It's in one of the Health and Social Care Acts. I can't remember which one off the top of my head, probably 2006. Oh, that might be NHS Act 2006. But it's basically data that is identifiable or likely identifiable to the recipient. Um, so if NHS number is included, for example, and shared around a lot of organisations, then even if you haven't got the name and address, for example, a lot of organisations can decode the NHS numbers. You can argue that actually data with the NHS number in, into a degree is probably confidential patient information and many tens of thousands of staff potentially could re-identify it. If the NHS number was pseudonymized through a technique to a different number that people can't reverse, you start to move out of that definition of confidential patient information. Um, but bottom line, Anything that's identifiable or identifies the patient would be potentially subject to a national data opt-out and organisations have to build their systems to link into that by the end of June, I think is the latest version. It could be July, I can't remember. No, it's July, sorry. COPE is the end of June. July is, is the national data opt-out. That's been delayed a number of times over the, the COVID situation, um, partly because organisations haven't had the time, partly because it does impact on some of the abilities under the COPE regulations to process data for the COVID pandemic. And so that's the, the national data opt-out. And the idea eventually is that the type ones that are within the practice systems will be translated into some form of opt-out that's linked in with the national data opt-out as well, so that it's simplified for the patient. I don't quite technically know how they're going to do that, um, but greater minds than mine are thinking about the sort of system basis of doing that in due course, but we don't know any, any further updates. 
The other opt-outs people potentially have, and this is where we may may turn them slightly differently rather than opt-outs, but turning objections relate to sharing for direct care. Um, the position on that basis is there's obviously the National Summary Care Record, and patients since that has been put in place 10 plus years ago now have always had the option to effectively opt-out is the term they use, but actually it's, it's using a data protection right to object to the processing. So people can refuse to have a National Summary Care Record. Um, and I think changes that were made under the COVID copy regulations to add the additional information in, we don't quite know yet whether they are going to carry on in that way because they basically added the additional information to each record in previous terms that you had to consent to have the additional information added to your summary care record. But that was changed in the COVID situation. I don't know if it's going to go back to the old way of, of working. Um, I can see reasons why it should. I can also see reasons why it's beneficial not to, um, but we haven't heard the latest on that one. And the other sort of objection and opportunity is to a lot of these local shared care records that are now in place. Obviously, in Wessex, you've had Chai in, in some areas for quite a while. You've got other ones around this for edges. They've always had the option of a patient objecting, is, is, say, is the legally technically correct term to the data being used in a shared care record, which quite a few of those shared care records, Chai, Dorset Care Record, for example, as long as the individual understands the impact of their choice by objecting to say, I don't want to have my data in the shared care record. And, and the fact in this case, that might affect their care. Um, and then it's then taken that if the individual is sure that is what they want, understands it does have an impact on the effectiveness and quality of care. Again, they can be opted out and quite a few people are opted out of both of those sort of systems. Um, but obviously it's, it's less advisory as a choice perhaps than obviously the, the more pure, freer choice about I don't want my data used for research or planning or, or whatever in its identifiable form. Um, patients technically can't stop us using the data that's been anonymized in those sort of forms, but obviously there are ways and means by which anonymization is taking forward as well. So that consciously gets more and more complex the more and more we talk about it, but that's sort of the whistle-stop tour through the position at this point in time. Um, in your systems, if you look at any of them, there's a whole load of different codes in there that, that apply in different circumstances, some of which we hope would effectively sort of reduce because it's, there should only really be a code in your system about type 1 opt-outs, a code in your system about the summary care record, and a code in your system about perhaps a local shared care record. But I know there's about four or five other things that have grown up over time just to make it a little bit more confusing. Um, it is confusing, isn't it? Thank you, Adam. That's really helpful. So I think the sort of the the question is sort of what do we need to do now? So the practice managers are thinking, what do I need to do with any of this? You've got some questions coming in now. So do we need to contact the patients or change the coding of the records we have who patients who've opted out in the past to keep us compliant? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, it's a good one. It is. Um, it depends, really. I mean, the, the problem with a lot of this is historically that because so many codes have grown up over so many years for different objectives and programs at any point in time, they're not necessarily um, comprehensively used. The I wouldn't imagine, wouldn't advise necessarily that you need to go and do a massive exercise in trawling back and finding which patients have got which opt-out codes and then thinking which ones should they have. Um, but I think what would be useful, and I, I'm, I'm working on it with another shared care record program, and I'm quite happy to share it through the LMC as well, is what are the best codes to use now for opting patients out of things? Um, and so effectively, I say, breaking it down to the three options that would be applied at the practice of the, the type one about the beyond the care, because um, you don't do the national data opt-out. You can tell them where to go to do that, but you wouldn't do it. Um, and the ones around summary care records and shared care records, um, those are the three, I think, really that apply. So, And a lot of the systems have up to a point sort of kind of reacted to 
whichever codes happen to be in there. I know GraphNet, although it's not in place anymore for um, the systems really within the Wessex area, because obviously Chai is now Orion um, and Dorset is Orion as well and always has been. They're changing their reactions to Coastline. I don't think it really affects you guys. So I, I wouldn't say wholesale you've got to do any review, but it's useful for you to know which codes should be used going forward, particularly if you get any patient queries that come in on, on that basis. Okay. And is the national data opt-out, is it patient-led or practice-led? Do we have, how, how proactive do the patients need to be, do the practice need to be on this? Um, I would argue it's not really for practices to be that proactive. I think in any of your sort of privacy notices, fair processing information or, or web pages where you might talk about the use of patient data, absolutely link your page to the national data opt-out page as well. Um, I wouldn't put too much explanation about what it is there because that page itself should explain to the patient what it's all about. And the more you might add into that, the more inconsistencies could possibly arise in, in that way. Um, that page, I mean, the, the page they've got on the National Data Archive page is a good page. It's pretty clear. Um, and it does state particularly that this is what it applies to, but it doesn't affect your direct care, for example. So you, if you opt out of your data being used for things that are beyond your direct care, that National Data Archive shouldn't then affect your direct care in any shape or form. So yeah, something you previously noticed, but linked into their, their pages, I think is, is most appropriate at that stage. And do we have something, Lisa, I'm just going to bring you in here. Do we have something that a sort of template privacy notice that would be helpful if practices could look at to, to compare with their own? Um, do we have a template for that? So we, so we did, Louise. And I think um, because all practices have a DPO now, we felt that's probably in terms of consistency and everything else, it's probably better for practices to go to their DPOs for that sort of information because that's where the expertise sits. So there are templates, BMA has templates that you can search up, but I think sort of first step we'd probably go say, go and discuss with your DPO. And I think we've taken down quite a bit of that information now that we okay. did have initially. That sounds good advice. Okay, um, Adam, we have had difficulties with opt-out for a patient where they want no contact at all. Opt-out has not worked and they've been contacted by the NHS for national screening, et cetera. We've been asked by them to not put them on the spine, et cetera, and we haven't done this, but what do you suggest? Oh, um, I mean, there, what I would suggest here is, is potentially, you've got a patient here who's going beyond really what the sort of main opt-outs are intended to do. Um, I don't obviously know their reasons and whatever for it. I know this has been a typical issue and in the past for a few individuals, a very small in number, and they've almost opted themselves out of NHS care to some degree. Um, because I think they, <laughs> excuse me, they, they don't have an automatic right of opt-out for things like national screening. They can object to the processing, but under the GDPR side of things where you've got the right as an individual to object how your data is being used, there is a caveat that cuts it out in this respect that might apply. This is if the controller, i.e. the practice or the NHS in general, has compelling legitimate grounds to continue using their data, then obviously we can put that to the individual and we can actually overturn um, their right to object on that basis. It wouldn't advise it to be commonplace done, but if you think about this, the safety of an individual in some of these sort of situations, particularly around screening, et cetera, then it really becomes a bit of a sort of rock and a hard place circumstance. Um, and they've asked not to be put on the spine. I know in the past that the, the sort of few cases that have gone that far, they've either accepted they have to be on the spine um, or they've actually decided that they're effectively opting out of, of NHS care. Um, I don't know if it's then appropriate to get your, your medical defence unions or others involved at that stage because obviously you're getting into clinical risk territory, which I'm not really in a position to 
to advise upon. I mean, I know it's related to the data, but it's related to the use of it and the provision of care to the individual. Um, and getting out of screening and things is, is, is a significant clinical risk. So mm. I don't know, Lisa, if you've got any other thoughts so on that. Yeah, Lisa one. or Ed, do you have help yeah. Ed, Ed, Ed may, may want to come in. I think we have had a couple of contacts from practices where they've had that very difficult situation. And as Adam says, effectively it's almost become becomes impossible to provide them with a full range of, you know, general medical services because it becomes impossible to link them into things like screening so there's a need and and from a sort of um practice perspective to have a conversation with them to make sure they really do understand the implications of not doing that and i think absolutely have a com- conversation with your medical defense organization because um it's it's fraught with difficulties in, in terms of they're not really accessing the full range of care that they may need Yes, and I think somebody, um, so a couple of comments. Please can we have a step-by-step guide for practice managers? This is all becoming basically like a rabbit warren, and there, there is a lot of information out there, but find, trying to find the right information at the right time is really hard. And Jan's just saying, can we send you something on this? It's causing me issues, the individual is getting no care. So obviously it's anxiety for the um, for the patient's point of view as well. But you might, it sounds like the medical defence union might be the person, uh, organisation might be the place to, to go to get. Louise, so we, we can pick that up with Jan sort of off. Yeah, outside the yeah. yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of guidance in the GMC confidentiality guidance, which is section 31. I've got it here. It says, and this is patients objecting to share information for their own care, which in terms of screening and sort of spine compliance is, is the case. You should explain to the potential patient the potential consequences of a decision not to allow personal information to be shared with others. You should also consider the patient whether any compromise can be reached. If after a discussion, patient has capacity to make the decision still object to the disclosure, you are convinced is essential to provide safe care, you should explain you cannot refer them or otherwise arrange for their treatment without disclosing their information. So GMC guidance actually says in those circumstances, they are saying you should, if the individual is using their right to object, you could potentially on that basis overrule it. Okay, we've had a comment in, um, Adam, we've had this before with the patient not wanting to be contemplated anyone, we're advised by registry and having them a by having an NHS number, a patient is opting in to certain NHS care, such as screening. The only option is to deregister from any practice. And that is effectively, I think, what it does get into if that's how far they wish to, to go with it, wow. which of course has a lot more wider implications than than just a little bit of data protection, really. Yeah. So, um, yeah, gosh. That's I, think, I think it is that impact, isn't it? It's just... You know, hopefully this is information that we generally don't need to, to know too much about or it functions fairly smoothly it's those really difficult um cases where it's a real pa- um, impact on direct patient care that's the difficulty and i think, I think this is why you know a webinar is great you can have that interactive questions where it's uh, it's really hard to get across in a in an email mm, or various links um so um just um one of our um, delegates is just trying to summarize so on patients registering they only need to be offered the opt-out of type one and the gdpr objection I would say they don't need to be offered anything at all. What you need to let them know is basically, I mean, I would always advise that on a patient registration for a new patient, if you've got anything in your sort of patient handbook or registration forms, et cetera, that gives a, either a link to your fair processing policy or privacy notice, et cetera, that it's there that you should explain how as an organization you use data and that then yeah, well, that would get into a little bit of detail about the objections and, and highlight that they are there. But it's not a question you need to say, you've got this choice, you've got that choice. It's more if they've got concerns, then those are the options open to be explored further. Um, your choice, of course, as organisations, but certainly 
the, the GDPR, for example, says you need to make people aware of what their data protection rights are. And one of the rights, obviously, is, is objection to that stage. But that can be, say, just and typically as part of a fair processing notice to say, this is what we do with your data. Have a read of this. If you've got concerns, here's the summary of your rights, et cetera. Um, let us know if you've got anything you want to discuss. Um, I think the scary bit is when they say, yes, I do want to discuss it. And then you feel like you just don't have the knowledge to discuss it. And um, I think people feel a little bit vulnerable. There's, there's so much to get your head around, isn't there? That, that is one of the problems with this because it's grown up in so many different shapes and forms over the years. There's so much. It's not a question of finding guidance on the Internet. It's finding the right bit and the best bit because um, there's loads of it out there. Um, DPOs, again, should be a source of advice and guidance on this to, to sort of advertise their service. Um, they should know pretty much everything I know on, on that basis. So yeah. I would and always use them if you're not already. Maybe some um, maybe some um, few sentences for the staff to be aware of, to sort of in, increase their, their awareness, their, their knowledge and their confidence. I think a lot of the, this now is a, is a lack of confidence in the area, isn't it? Because it is feeling so overwhelmingly complicated. Um, okay. Is there anything, we haven't got any more questions coming in on that. I don't know whether... Um, uh, one more. Until they need a COVID vaccine, they don't have an latest number. Ah, oh, yes. We've had a couple change their minds last year because suddenly there was a good reason for it. Yes, it's a whole different thing, isn't it? Thank you, David. Okay, so I think probably, Adam, sorry, that was a bit, little bit um, intense, wasn't it, for you? Lots and lots of questions coming, which weren't so straightforward, but that was fantastic. Thank you so much. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll stick that as a separate little podcast in itself. So if, if you have members of your staff that you'd like to just hear that conversation and hear the discussion, which should be useful, we'll look keep sending out more information we'll keep updating our web pages but we do know it's just a complicated subject and i say um, just louise as a follow-up i say for one of the other share care records i'm working on we've got to create a little bit of guidance for their gps around which codes to use for opt-outs so i'll share that with you guys and yes, um, so you can then put it on your website or share it where you need to as well because why why shouldn't one area get it when all the others can have it too yes please Share, share with anything. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Adam. So I think we come to the end of our webinar for today. So thank you so much, Adam. It's great to have you with us. Um, Ed, Lisa and Dawn, also brilliant. Um, we'll have, a, as I say, we'll have this as a, um, as a podcast of recording. We're not going to be back in two weeks' time because that's just the day before our practice manager conference and we think you might have too much of us. So we're going to, do, our next one is going to be on the 22nd of June. So we will see you back then. And um, it's been lovely to see you all today. And uh, we look forward to seeing much, many of you at the conference. So take care. Thanks again, everybody. Bye-bye. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.